What's up, you crazy bastards? Welcome back to E-Crime Bites. This is where I research the court documentation and roast the criminals so you don't have to. All right, so this week you're jumping in on Act 2, which is the controlled delivery of Season 3, Episode 7, which is actually $4 million in fake Xanax. Okay. I Man, in Act 1, which was Meet Stephen Camano. That's the criminal in this case. Now, I released that one yesterday, okay? I'm going to put a link here on YouTube so you can go back and watch that in full if you haven't already. That's really, really how I recommend you watch these is actually in order because I try not to repeat too much for the people that do watch them in order. But if you're going to plow on, let me give you a real quick synopsis of what happened in act number one. I gave you an introduction to Stephen Camano, who is a young man. I showed you his picture. He lived at a place in Illinois and he had pill presses on delivery to his house. The Customs and Border Control, they knew this and they were like, hey, fuck, man, I mean, we, we're busy. Okay, this is not our thing. They gave it to the DEA. So the DEA started watching him in his house and they found him driving around to postal boxes that I even found. I found the fucking pictures and showed you in the last act. I really recommend you back up and watch it. But if you didn't, I showed you the picture of where he dropped a bunch of Mila envelopes. And in these envelopes were tons and tons of Xanax bars that actually looked like legit Xanax. It looked like they came from Pfizer. Okay, you're gonna find out they didn't here in a minute. And I'm, it'll make more sense here in a minute. Okay, so they did the investigation. They started seeing that Xanax was landing sort of all over the place. And in some cases they went to the recipient or like, hey, uh, you got a package coming to you. And the recipient was like, yeah, you can open it. And they open it up and it's like, oh, it's a whole bunch of fucking Xanax. And the recipient's like, I don't know what that is. And the DEA's like, well, we're gonna keep this now as evidence. And they've been storing it, okay? And they've been building this case against Stephen Camano, but they don't know, they haven't done their full investigation yet to put him in jail, okay? That's what I'm gonna talk about in this act number two, the controlled delivery, because everything that I talked about in act number one was more, it was a passive investigation. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, they got to sit back and they got to watch mail bounce around the system. And they were like, Ooh, that one's probably bad. Cause I think that one came from the same easy post account number that this criminal has been using across all his shipments. Okay. That's the key thing in this. He uses the same account number where he pays money for his postage, same account number on every one of these packages that we're talking about. And that's, an easy, easy way for the investigators to just start piecing this together. So that's what I mean by passively. They're just watching this right now. But at some point, they get it, they switch over to an active investigation where they do a controlled delivery where they take one of these packages of Xanax and they're like, they dress up as the, you know, postal service, put on their hat, they're like, <laughs> they don't look like DEA and they show up and they're like, hey, I got a package for you, you got to sign for it though. And then the resident's like, oh, yeah, no problem. I'll sign for it. And they sign for it. They're like, ha ha, I got you, bitch. And they, you know, hopefully have got you with the drugs in your hand. That's in the best case scenario. That's how it's supposed to work, okay? So basically, in the March 22nd of 2018, there was an investigator that identified some mailings going to an address in Cleveland, Ohio. And they decided to do this um, uh, 
controlled delivery on this particular package. Okay, so on March 26, 2018, you have investigators now doing this controlled delivery that I told you about earlier on one of these packages. And they go through the motions, exactly how I explained it to you. And finally, they caught the person. And because of that, they get to do a, you know, a search warrant, or not a search warrant, but they um, talked to the person in, in, in the interview and they said, oh, I consent to let you see everything and let you see in the package. And basically they find out all the same shit that you found out earlier. There's this easy post account that paid for the shipping on this package. Same number that keeps popping up that ends up being associated with Steven Camano. There's various narcotics in there. There's and meaning like Xanax and other stuff in there. There's priority mailing envelopes, meaning this person looks like a shipper themselves. There's label markers. There's a food saver machine with plastic bags commonly used for vacuum packaging. Why would you need to vacuum package anything normal that you sent through the mail? I cannot think of a reason. Uh, I mean, I imagine somebody's going to be like, well, I got to send, you know, a dead specimen. Yeah, okay, I get it. I get it. But a normal person, eh, I've never had to shrink wrap or vacuum wrap something to send it through the mail to one of my friends. Usually uh, would if you had smelly drugs in there and you don't want the dogs smelling your Xanax or weed or whatever is in there. So a vacuum packaging machine would make sense, right? In a drug place. So the person that they interviewed provided a statement to the agents and said that, uh, okay, you caught me. Um, all this Xanax that you see here, I, it didn't, it's not for me originally. I'd buy it from somebody. It was, I know it's a surprise. It's a surprise that I buy it from somebody. I don't manufacture it myself, but I'm willing to give you the name of the person I buy it from. Hopefully, hopefully this will help me later on, later on down the legal pipeline. I hope, I hope. So let me tell you a little bit about this person that I order it from. His name is Googleplex, spelled G-O-O-G-L-E-P-L-E-X. And I know some people are like, why the fuck is he spelling it to me? It's because there's another Googleplex out there spelled G-O-O-G-O-L-P-L-E-X, which is the number. So if you're watching this and not watching the closed captions and stuff, this guy is, I think, trying to make himself look like Google the company and not Google the number when he calls himself Googleplex. Because there's actual Googleplex, like complex out in California that maybe he's trying to refer to in here. That's the computer nerd in me. That's what I felt when I read this. I don't know this as a fact. This is just what I felt. So anyways, the person that they're talking to that's just basically spilling the beans at this point is like, yeah, I buy it from this person named Googleplex. All the Xanax, that's who I get it from. I used to buy it from on the Dream Market. And tangent here, I did a quick research that Dream Market was a dark web marketplace that was in existence from 2013 through 2019. So if you've caught any of my other episodes where we talk about these dark web markets, same type of thing here. Dream Market is just another name for another one of them. They, they pop up and go down very quickly. So, you know, the dream market, that was just the one that these criminals used during the time that they were doing their crime. I'm just going to be saying the dark web markets from here on out. 
I just wanted to tell you which one it was because it actually told me in the court documentation and some people find that interesting. So this person said that they purchased directly from Googleplex on the dream market by sending Monero cryptocurrency to a wallet provided by Googleplex. Okay, and that's somewhere along the lines. I don't know if it's like a confidence thing or the dream market just went down or they didn't want to pay a fee associated with dealing with the dream market. I don't exactly know how that works, but I know that they started communicating directly over email. So it's kind of like drug purchaser connects to this Googleplex person, not through a forum anymore. And I'm showing our video people with motions with my hands. I know I have some video or I'm sorry, audio listeners that won't catch that, but I'm showing you it's like redirection, right? Well, they just directly now talk over email and it's kind of like, Hey, you want some Xan, you know, I want to buy some Xanax and it's like, okay, well, this is how much it costs. It's like, great. And how much was this purchaser buying from Googleplex? $5,000 at a time, not just once twice. And then the third time it was $4,000. So they dropped almost $15,000 on Xanax loan. So I did the math myself and I'm like, this person is probably a drug. Um, like he's not, a, I wouldn't say he's a trafficker. He's probably that middle level that I talked about earlier where, you know, you can purchase your drugs from them, but not the high quantities of trafficking that we're seeing with Steven Kamano. Okay. So this person steps up in buying the, her shit from Steven Kamano because Kamano apparently has a ton of Xanax, right? He has a pill press. All right. And they also said that they bought the Xanax pills at 60 cents a piece. And so my mind immediately was like, well, what does a normal Xanax? Like if you bought it from a pharmacy or if you were a pharmacy purchasing it from Pfizer, what would you spend on this thing? Well, you know, just to give me an approximate cost. And in the time that this crime occurred, one Xanax pill, one Xanax pill, one cost nine to $11, depending on what month of the year you looked at the price while the crime happened between March of 2017 and May of 2018. So, the criminals are buying it at 60 cents a piece. You can imagine uh, who knows what they sell it to the users for. It's probably, it's probably dollars. I imagine a few dollars a pill. So they're probably marking it up a lot. It's, it's a pretty big profit, I think. So now cops are like, Hey, thanks cooperating witness. I guess at this point, I don't know what you are. Maybe we'll charge you. Maybe we won't. It didn't say, but they said, thank you for all your assistance. Now we know to look for Google Plex and specifically that witness said that they, um, had talked to Google Plex also on Reddit forums. And I was like, holy shit. No, don't tell me you like met your drug dealer over Reddit forums. And it is true. It is true in this case. That's where they met him. And so the officers sat down and were like, you don't, you don't think that's true. Do you, you don't think they actually communicated over Reddit 
for drug deals and shit, do you? So they sat down and they typed into Google, Googleplex and Reddit, and they found Googleplex talking on Reddit forums. And they were like, no shit. <laughs> okay. So they added that to their evidence too. They figured out, you know, hey, this whole case is, is probably what she, what that person told us is probably real. Now, a couple thoughts there. I was like, holy crap, this person is now busted by a, just a single fucking Google search. Was what took this criminal down? And second, they were taken down by a Google search because a Google can index public sites like Reddit. So that is why you see these dark web forums being used for drug deals and everything else is because Google doesn't have away and i say this with a grain of salt i do realize you can still search stuff and index it but you don't have a giant one-stop shop search site to the caliber of google where you can type something like this in and find your criminal on reddit in the forums just like the witness said he would be so at this point drugs are just fucking falling from the sky right the drugs are falling from the sky everywhere. On March 29th of 2018, some drugs fall. This is a Thursday. Law enforcement agents were told by the Postal Service that there's this easy post account with the same goddamn number on it. It made a package that was turned into the normal Illinois post office under quote-unquote refused mail. Probably, I imagine, sent somewhere. I don't know. I try to make these scenarios up in my mind, right? I imagine maybe there's a scenario where a drug purchaser was like, hey, I don't want this going to my address, so I'm going to send it to this guy's address over there, and I'm going to watch for a package to show up. And when it does, I'm going to go over there and fucking steal it from him. So I imagine in that scenario, a package lands, and that maybe the drug purchaser didn't catch it in time. And then the, the actual person went, I didn't order this. What the fuck is this shit? Return to sender. Send it back in the mail, and it goes back. But now, now it's in the postal hand and they, you know, they get law enforcement, they have their own law enforcement agents there and they get DEA involved and so forth. When they talk to them, the, the intended or the written recipient, uh, they were like, yeah, I didn't order this. I don't know why the fuck it was sent to me. I have no knowledge of the contents. And they were like, okay, okay. We expected that. Let's go back to the recipient or the sender now and ask the same question. They said, uh, this time, by the way, it was not Colin Taylor or, uh, gosh, I forget the other lady's name. It wasn't it wasn't those two names. It was an actual other person. And they went, hey, um, did you send a package? And that person was like, no, no, I never sent a package. And they're like, so if we show you a package that looks like this, does that look familiar to you? And they look at it they're like, uh, uh, no, definitely, definitely did not send that package. And law enforcement's like, okay, all right. So now that. At this point, I think they have enough information to do whatever they need to do to be able to open the package because they do. And there's a thousand Xanax pills in there. So real looking Xanax pills that we know are fake because this is all tied to Stephen Kamano at the end. So this was the whole controlled delivery that happened in this case was basically like they were going to take it there and then the person was like i i don't know what this is and they're like oh okay uh all right let's go talk to the sender they talked to the sender and the sender was like i don't know what this is and they're like uh okay they open it up and it's a thousand pills <laughs> so that was the whole control delivery 
So I don't know. At this point, they have enough information to get a judge to sign off on a search warrant because there's a search warrant that has two two houses identified that they're going to search. Okay, so let's talk about the first one. Um, the first one is at 510 South Fair Street, and this is you know in um, Champaign, Illinois. And this was listed in the court documents as a quote-unquote rental. And they didn't specify if he was renting it to somebody or if he was renting it from somebody. They just said it was a rental that was largely empty. But but when they, they issued the search warrant, they found some shit. They found various metal machine parts. Now imagine, remember I said all these pill presses, they're machines, right? They have pieces. They found their proof of residency, meaning that he lives there. They found an instruction manual for a, I guess it would be a medicine scale, not a people scale, but an actual medicine scale. They found a Toshiba laptop. Now computers, as you know, from all these episodes have tons of evidence. So that's probably a really good thing for the investigators to find. And then this, this bothered me, a cutting agent powder, which means he's watering down these pills and who knows what it is. They didn't specify if it was, you know, baking soda or what the hell it is, but the people that are taking the pills that he produced are now taking something that I'm sure some drug users know that they're taking some shit in there, but I imagine a lot of people are like, Hey, these look like real Xanax bars and they pop them and they're like, hey, uh, maybe I'm getting a tolerance. I'm only getting about one milligrams worth a buzz. Maybe I go need to buy another one. Well, that's what Stephen Kamano is doing here with his cutting agent. Now, I've had this picture of the residence here on the screen. It's very, I got it from Google Maps, you know, with all these pictures. And it's just very nondescript. It looks like a little kind of cottage uh, house set back from the road. There's nothing where you would look at it and go, oh, there's be drugs being sold or produced, or I wouldn't even worry about my safety in this neighborhood. I mean, you look at these houses and they look very well kept. The lawns are mowed very nicely. The house, the truck next door looks nice. I wouldn't be scared in this neighborhood. I wouldn't think, hey, there's drugs here. So the second residence, now this is the picture of the house that I showed you earlier with the god awful uh, tinsel or the, not tinsel, the, um, well, let me tell you a tinsel story later on, but I'll save that for another episode. But the uh, icicles that are hanging from the roof, yes. That's the picture I have on your screen now, screen now. And this is where most of the evidence exists in this case, okay? We got some evidence at the first spot, but the lion's share of the evidence is over here. So the second residence that law enforcement searched, this is the Glenshire Drive that I told you about earlier and showed you a picture. I'll put a picture on the screen again here to remind you. So let me go through this stuff and then I'll, oh God, there's a lot of stuff. There's this ZP9 rotary tablet press. And this is, when I say tablet press, I'm not talking like computer tablet, I'm talking pill press, okay? I'm gonna put a picture of this pill press on the screen. It's obviously something that a normal person would not have in their house. They have two 20 liter mixing machines. 20 liters, man, that's, Think about that. If you were to put 10 two-liter um, sodas in this thing, that's so much room. So he's mixing 
a ton of powder here and he's got two of these mixing machines not one he's got two he's got three commercial grade scales for mixing powders he's got three heavy duty vacuum sealing machines and i do realize most people have one you know i do sous vide cooking and that's what i use mine for but to have three heavy duty ones that's a little abnormal He's got all the big plastic bins and containers to transport his drugs around the house. He's got a container with a binding agent called Firmopress, which I guess takes, makes it so you can take these powders and hook and mix it with this stuff and it makes a solid pill. And then he's got actual pressed counterfeit Xanax bars, okay? So finished product he has at that house. And then he has non-prescribed steroids, which I wasn't even sure that you could get non-prescribed steroids, but he had them and they law enforcement said they found them. He had doping masking agents, which sound like some form of chemical to cover up whatever medicine it is you don't want to show up in your random drug analysis tests. And then he has a bunch of other drugs. He had one called tramadol and another one called Domperidone. And I apologize if I messed up that name. He's got tryptamine or tryptamine, which is a psychedelic. And then he's got packaging materials. Think like shipping type of packaging materials to send it to his mid-level drug purchasers that we talked about earlier in the control delivery, right? And then he had things like, you know, multiple cell phones and multiple computers and hard drives and memory sticks and all the great things you would want when you're doing an investigation because it's got evidence that you can search. But they did say that they did not find all the pill presses that they did know that Stephen Kamano purchased in his lifetime. And they know this because he purchased it. He purchased it through. PayPal, apparently. So their statement was, we did not find all of the pill presses Kamano appeared to have purchased via PayPal. And I was like, holy shit, how many other pill presses did this man purchase? They didn't say. They didn't say. But it was multiple, apparently. Okay, so you can imagine. Now they've done the controlled delivery. They did the search warrant. They look around. They're like, you guys think we got enough evidence? What about you? You think... Enough evidence? I mean, we got thousands, almost hundreds of thousands of pills. We got pill presses. We searched his house. We found drugs. We found tons of shit. You think we got enough evidence? Someone was like, yes, it is now time. We are going to file our complaint. And he is arrested. And I'll tell you now, he's held until trial for a couple of different reasons. One is they thought he was a flight risk. And the second is a competency hearing. And I'm going to talk a little deeper about that later on. So when they arrested him, they charged him with two counts. Okay. One was distribution of a controlled substance. And I thought, that's what you want to charge him with? Distribution of a controlled substance? That sounds kind of light for what he was doing, but okay. All right. I'll go with you. And the second count was attempt to distribute a controlled substance. And I was like, really? That's what you want to go with the second one? Uh, just distribution? Which is, again, uh, earlier I, I described these levels. This is the mid-level type of crime, right? There's distribution in the middle, trafficking, trafficking at the top, and then there's just you know personal usage at the bottom, okay? So that's 
the three levels that I'm keeping in my mind here. And they're charging him with the mid-level. And I'm thinking, this dude, he has so much. He has so many materials. He ha- he's going through hundreds of thousands of pills. You've got to, you got to charge him with more than this. All right, so that complaint that I just told you about, that came out, that was May 29th of 2018. Five months later, in October, uh, it was actually October 2nd of 2018, there's a superseding indictment. Probably because someone sat around and was like, you know, we saw like 80,000 pills over here. So another 1,000 pills over here. He has a goddamn press machine. Did anybody know you could buy a press machine as an individual? I didn't know you could buy that. Fuck. All right, let's do a superseding indictment. Count number one, trafficking a counterfeit drug. Okay, so this is this is the big charge. Okay, this is the one that's going to carry to the end. Trafficking. I don't know if there is a larger charge than that. I, In my research, it seemed trafficking was like the worst thing that you could have been charged with. So I'm curious if there's anything worse than that. So that was count one. Now, counts two through three, distribution of a controlled substance. So, you know, they kept it. They, that was the same charge from earlier, but they added another one. So now we're off to three counts. Earlier, we were only on two. They keep going. So now we got counts four and five. This is money laundering. Okay. Yeah. All right. I can see that. Counts six and seven. Engaging in monetary transactions in property derived from spe- specified unlawful activity. Holy fuck, I've never seen that in a case that we've covered yet. And I imagine there was some old crusty-ass lawyer sitting around going, we only got five counts, guys. Um, I can think of two more. It's a really complex-sounding law. I, I agree with you. And it sounds exactly like the other counts that we charged them with, but we can charge them with two more counts of engaging in monetary transactions and property derived from specified unlawful activity. Which sounds like pretty much any crime ever, right? <laughs> All right. So in that indictment also, they said not only not only do we want to charge you and have you go to prison, buddy, we want all the money you made too, okay? And I'm just going to put the chart on the screen for you, and I'm not going to go through all the shit that they want from him back, but I'm going to highlight a few different things. They want the money that he has in his bank account, which is fair, right? I mean, it's like $45,000. They're like, you should give that to us because you're making money off of this. And spoiler alert, um, I will talk about it again later on, but it's about when the government did the math on how much he probably made, they came up with a figure about $2 million. So when they're taking $45,000 out of his bank account, not much money in the scheme of what he made, right? I mean, it sounds like a lot to you and me because $45,000 is a lot of money. But this fucker made over $2 million in illicit counterfeit drugs. So $45,000 is not even a down payment on that $2 million that he needs to come up with to pay the government back. They'll talk about later on. Okay. So this chart, this is what the government figured he were different things that he either used or he were able to make based upon the crime. And I say used, meaning there's computers in there, right? So he used computers to commit the crime and they're going to seize that. They're going to make him forfeit it. But there's also cryptocurrency tokens because when, you know, he makes his money through his drugs, he needs, he needs people to pay him somehow. And that's the most anonymous form of payment that I think he thought of 
And so we used it. So there's a bunch of coins listed here, and I'm not going through all of them, but there's a bunch of coins I've never even seen before that probably don't even exist. And I did see in the court paperwork, there were some categories of coins where they were just like, ah, these are worthless. We don't even care about them anymore. Don't even bother try to try to forfeit them. So I told you about this competency hearing, right? This thing happened right off the fucking bat. It was unbelievable. He, his lawyer came in and says, I want to do a competency hearing on my client and he's also held by the court his his being held depended on his competency and, and so did going to trial depended on his competency and i was like wow. so when i'm doing the research i'm like why what would cause this and so i started reading into the language and his lawyer said this is why he would have difficulties okay he grew up in new york city and he had to leave his home as a child after 9-11. Now, 9-11 in New York City, towers were hit with planes. They fell. He couldn't go back home because it was within the vicinity of, of these towers. And apparently this is where his life started getting difficult. Now, because of that, they bounced around his shelters and apartments and things and you know homes and stuff like that that I imagine people would be like, hey, you can come live with me for a while while you find a home. So they bounced around. So that was probably pretty unstable for Steven. And then at some point, his mom moved to Korea, taking Steven and his brother with her. Okay. And they were young. Okay. So I can imagine as a young kid, right? All of a sudden you see that shit with 9-11. You're like, oh my God. And then your mom's like, hey, American kid, we're going to go to Korea now. And you're looking around, everybody's speaking a different language. You know, things look like visually like buildings and things just look different to you as a kid. The meals aren't the same. Oh my God. That's gotta just be, it's, it's gotta take some adjustment at, uh, on the best of scenarios. I imagine. So then his dad comes and visits him in Korea says, Hey, uh, mother, we're divorced now. And I think the mother was kind of like, all right, and then the father was like, I'm taking Steven. You keep the other boy and takes off. And I read this in the court paperwork and I was like, really, you're going to leave me on a cliffhanger like that. They didn't tell me anything more about that. Though, other than basically the dad showed up, got a divorce, took him, left Steven's brother there. And then later on, when they're talking to him after they caught Steven, they said, hey, do you know anything about your brother? And he's like, I, I can't remember. We were so young. I don't even remember his name. I didn't, I didn't even know his name until recently. So for 16 years of being separated from his brother, he didn't know really that much about him at all. All right. So I'm going to have a bunch more about his background that becomes important later on. So sit tight for a second. At this point, the court was like, okay, all right. Yeah. Well, his background does suck. Yes, but okay. A lot of people they do have shitty backgrounds. We do agree his background sucks, but he is competent. So he's going to have to stay in trial either way. Okay. And I imagine Kamano went back to with his lawyers and he was like, fuck, oh man, I was hoping for an, maybe just an incompetent so I could go to a hospital and not, you know, oh God, now I got, now I got to fight this thing. And he's like, ah, fuck it. Fuck it. I'm going to plead guilty. I'm going to plead guilty to all seven counts of this thing. And again, if you follow me with other episodes, this is rare. Usually when people plead guilty, especially before a trial, they will do it in hopes that 
if there's seven counts, maybe you only charge them or maybe you only plead guilty to two counts. Maybe it's the two worst counts or maybe it's the two least worst counts, depending on how bad of a criminal you are. This guy, he pled guilty to everything. Okay, so all those trafficking, the trafficking charge, all that shit earlier, I read you, pled guilty, which surprised me. Okay, so I imagine the government was like, oh, fuck. Okay, well, he pled guilty. All right, sentencing now. All right, all right we get it. We get it. All right, going to the judge and they're like, hey, judge, we want 210 months of prison and three years supervised release. And I was like, holy shit. That is a lot of time. That's almost 20 years, right? Right? 20 years would be 240 months. Well, he doesn't get that much. Hold on. I'll tell you how much he gets. But that's a lot of time. And their reasoning here, their main reasoning was he took a lot of steps to conceal himself. Okay. It wasn't like he was like, oh, I'm really down on my luck. And I just needed to sell some, some fake Xanax to get by. It wasn't that case at all. They're saying this guy was a fucking trafficker. He knew he was a trafficker and he tried to hide his tracks as much as possible. And so far, I was reading the case and I was like, cover his tracks. This fucker used the same easy post account number on all his packages. You were able to trace him with that. What the hell do you mean cover his tracks? Did you not remember Googleplex and Reddit? Who, who the hell is a criminal posts on public Reddit in the forums where you could track them? That's not covering your tracks, right? So they were like, yeah, he was covering his tracks. And, and to be fair, to be fair, he was. He started out in the dark market, right? Like I said, it was the, what was it? The dream market or whatever the flavor of the day market was that they used. There was that market that he started out in. But then I think he just kind of got lazy and just flipped over to Reddit and probably got some buyers and they just communicated over email. And that was it. So I was like, this guy did not, did not spend a lot of time trying to cover his tracks. So I was really intent on this part of the court documentation. So they said, okay, this was interesting. And they, they just gave me very vague stuff here, but this was interesting. He created a limited liability company to hide the purchase of that house. Uh, I'm not sure which it was one of the houses or maybe both that he used as a base of operations. So what this means, if you're not familiar with it, is creating a company where you can't see the individual behind the company's name if you were to try to sue them or something like that. You can find it as law enforcement. But what we're saying here, what the attorneys are saying is he went to the steps of doing that, okay? He, he didn't just sign up in his name. He tried to anonymize it as much as possible. Then he used the dark web, like I told you about, and he used cryptocurrency, like I told you about, to try to hide those transactions as much as possible. And they said he, and they didn't specify what, but they said he had reliance on significant security measures built into his home computer. This could run the gamut, my, my friends. I've seen cases where people have put explosive charges on their computers where, you know, you don't put something in, it's like pow, right? And the hard drive goes to something that's just software, right? You don't type in the right password and it's like, just erases your hard drive. So it could be anything in there, I imagine. I hope you appreciate these guesses on my part because I used to 
do investigations. I don't know for sure. A lot of these documents are very vague and I just got to give you a, a couple scenarios of what it could possibly be or the most likely things it could be. So here's another tidbit. They found personal notes on his computer. Pay attention close now. His plan to move to Portugal using the proceeds of his current, his criminal activities. This fucker had a plan to bug out at the last moment. If he saw the fuzz rolling in. Right. And that, it sounds like not even go to like Canada or Mexico. I mean, this fucker's going to Portugal. Okay. So with all this, again, I, I stopped and I'm like, but government. Yeah. Yeah. He did try to hide his activities, but he was speaking over email and Reddit and using the same easy post number. So he was probably found because of that uh, complacency in his crime. Okay, so that's what the government says. They said they went in there and they said, hey, we want a 210 months and here's all the reasons why he tried to cover up his crime. And they sat down there looking at each other like, yeah, yeah, the judge is going to side with us. And the defense was like, okay, uh, it's our turn. What do we got here? We want 120 months. I know, I know, I know. Laughable compared to 210. To 120 months, by the way, is 10 years. And they said three years supervised release. So that the three years they agree with each other on. So I imagine that's going to become what it is. And they said, listen, here are the reasons. Here are the reasons why we want you to not be 210 months of prison, but have it be 120 months of prison. Instead, his mental health is getting better. Okay. He's dealing with his drug problems. Because he, you're going to find out he had a lot of drug problems himself. It's coming here in a minute. They also say he's reestablishing relationships with you know, father, mother, and so forth. Again, this will make more sense here in a minute. Now, let me get into this. He says, according to his lawyers in the paperwork, he says his biological mother and his biological father abused him. Varying levels of abuse, depending on who it was and different things that I read in the documentation. It's, you know, there were points where I saw coat hangers being referenced. And then there's other times where it sounds like it was more mental abuse, which is not any less. It's just a different form of abuse. So I imagine there were several ways that he was abused as a kid. If you believe what is written in the court paperwork, according to his attorneys. So these abusive biological parents, he ends. If, if, if you remember earlier, there's like this whole craziness where his father goes to Korea, basically says, fuck you to the mother divorces her, picks up Steve and comes back to the U S but he's still abusive too. So the father ends up marrying a woman who becomes Steven's stepmother. Okay. Hope you're following me. So boy, so Steven has a stepmother in the U S that he's living with, with the abusive father who ends up splitting with the abusive father. And Steven stays with the stepmother, which seems kind of strange as I read it on paper. I don't know why it may be because his stepfather was so abusive, but I don't know why, because she was also abusive. Maybe she was less abusive. Again, the way it was described in the court paperwork, all these people in his life were abusing him. Okay. 
Specifically, it said that Stephen hadn't talked to his dad since the year 2007. And that in that time, which was 2007, it went all the way until 2018 until he reconnected with his dad and things started getting better. And that was because he got arrested. Okay. And they're saying, listen, listen, Stephen's rearranging or he's, he's reconnecting with his father who he hasn't talked to in what, almost 10 years. So his, his life is on the right path here. We cannot send him to prison for 210 months. Okay. So then they go on and they say, also, we're not done judge. His stepmother would yell at him and beat him with coat hangers when she was angry with him. And I was like, holy fucking shit. Could you imagine getting beaten with coat hangers? And I do realize there are probably some listeners out there that have been beat with coat hangers. And I am so sorry. I, as young, I got hit pretty hard by my mother and I remember it very well. And it didn't involve a coat hanger. So again, I gotta say, I gotta apologize. Oh man, that I couldn't imagine is what I'm saying here. So you factor that into his, his childhood. And I'm thinking, okay, so now he's growing up, probably heading towards the wrong path because he's getting abused by everybody. There is this gigantic fucking plot twist in this guy's, I'll say childhood, young manhood, <laughs> because at some point after he graduated high school, his stepmother says, you got to join the Navy. So he did to appease her. So now I could stop here and you're like the guy, he joined the Navy. No, 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 no. It's much more than that. Okay. He didn't just join the Navy. What he did is he joined the U S Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. And I happen to know a little bit about this because I live next to the Naval Academy. Okay. And I know about the process about how to get in there. So what happens is when you apply there, it's like a college and you can imagine I went somewhere like Michigan state university, a normal college. You would just submit your test scores of the ACT or SAT or something like that. Cross your fingers and go, I hope I get in. And then they look at your application and they're like, yeah, he's strong in math, bad in English, but uh, we can work with him. Okay. Okay. We'll let him in. I go there. I study there. It's all educational. There's no physical aspect to it. Unless obviously I, I, I force it upon myself, but it's all educational, right? It's all engineering. I studied with calculators and computers. The Naval Academy is what I just described to you, but you add military on top of it. So while these, and I'll say quote unquote kids are in college doing this, doing all that education, engineering work that I'm telling you about. They're also later on marching outside with their company and learning about how to manage a ship, like a, like a battleship or something like that. And learning about fire safety and learning about all the things that they have to do in the military. They're marching in formation. They're having to stand in formation. They're having to meet, you know, six o'clock on a Sunday night in formation, all shit that you just would not do under normal. And I say normal, like air quotes here, your, your, your standard college experience when you're not in the military. Okay. So he's there, he's, he made it. 
And to get in, it's not just sending your test scores. You've got to do physical um, physical tests where they can make sure you can do so many push-ups and run so many miles under a certain amount of time and all that kind of stuff. But you also got to get a senator's approval, a fucking U.S. senator's recommendation approval letter, which are not unlimited. Some senators only give out X amount of them in their district. So you got to basically convince a senator to write a letter on your behalf to the U.S. Naval Academy. And it's it's all the academies. It's um, the Air Force Academy. It's um, uh, West Point. It's U.S. Naval Academy. This is the same similar process. So this guy is in there. He made it in there. He did this process, which means he is a bright motherfucker, and he is... He's not... <laughs> He's not Matt Foley living in a van down by the river, okay? <laughs> That's not the type of person we're dealing with here. We're dealing with a very, very bright individual that can get into a caliber of school like this. He was there a year until he figured out, uh, well, this fucking sucks in the military, which I know because I hear a lot of people in this program basically do say that. You're one, two, three, they go... Oh shit. I don't, I really don't like this. People are yelling at me all the time here when I'm studying. I just want to study. And I get that because I just wanted to study. <laughs> I wouldn't want to be in the military either. So people drop out all the time. That's kind of, that's kind of the process. A lot of people do drop out kind of by design by the time you get into the later years. So after year one, he's like, fuck this shit, which is probably the route I would have taken. And he left his, Stepmother was like, hey, I told you to join the Navy. You quit. We're done. We're done. And that was in 2013. And these crimes happen way later. So he, at this point, he has no family. All right. And the court paperwork says without many other options and without with no help from any family or support network, the defendant applied for and was accepted to UC Berkeley in California. And I was like, did you just say without many other options, like this is some kind of lowly college that you're going to that doesn't, you know, that it's just a fly by the night internet school. No, this is a very prestigious place that he went to. So again, this says he is a very, very, yeah, I don't know if gifted is the right word, but he is a smart individual, right? He's not, a lot of these other crimes I brought to you, um, people didn't, they had educational challenges. This guy, he just soared on this stuff. He soared on these tests and he got into these prestigious places that I'm jealous of. So um, at Berkeley, this is where he starts to change. So he starts discovering who he is as a person, which means he does a little bit of drugs. Okay. And he starts to enjoy drugs. This is where he starts learning about you know Xanax and all that kind of stuff because he starts self-medicating with drugs, which I imagine kind of led him to manufacturing them at some point. When he was at Berkeley, he sought mental health treatment and they said it worked for him. It worked well for him while he had mental health facilities at his disposal while he was there. So while he was there, he finished, it sounds like he finished his PhD and got a position at the University of Illinois. So again, think a very, very bright individual. You can't get a PhD and teach at any university and um, not know your stuff in your topic area. 
Okay, so for all those reasons, the defense are like, listen, he's had a very tough life. We understand he just got caught up in drugs because his family kind of screwed him over. He went down the wrong path, but you know, he was on he was on the right path until he found drugs in college. Let's let's just go light on him. Let's just set him back on the right path. And the court was like, okay, let me think for a minute. So one side wants 210 months, this other side wants 10 years. I'm going to go with 156 months. And I was like, God, that sounds fucking random. How much is that? And I did the math and it was 13 years. And I was like, holy shit, that's still a lot of time. 13 years is a lot of time. That's probably on the high end of a lot of the cases that I bring you week to week. A lot of times these these people will, will get away with four or five years on a very um, egregious crime, in my opinion. And this one, the guy is sentenced for 13 years, which is... That's some hard time, okay? Now they said, they recommend, the court recommends that he is in a facility where he can continue to get his mental health treatment and continue to get educational and vocational opportunities, which I think this guy's gonna fucking soar through it because he he made it into the the Naval Academy and then he, uh, his second choice was Berkeley. <laughs> so it's like, in prison, he's going to make it through any class that they have there, and I imagine he'll be teaching classes by the time he gets out. All right, so they ended up saying his supervised release, that was three years, which is standard in these type of cases. And they said, hey, um, you remember what the government wanted of like $2.1, $2.2 million of forfeiture, all those accounts and stuff, and your, 45, your measly $45,000 and all that? We're going to give it to him. So you do owe... A $2.1 million in restitution that you're going to have to be paying on. And again, they, I talked about this earlier, but they estimated this. Remember I talked about the pill cost and Pfizer, and then they said they sold it to the mid-level drug dealers for 60 cents. They did the calculation and they're like, okay, this guy profited about $2 million. That's what his restitution will be. And that's how this number came to be. So with that, he has to forfeit all that shit that I showed you earlier, all those cryptocurrency coins and his, um, I think it was his houses were on there and all that kind of stuff. And then later on, like months later, I saw the, the government popped up and they were like, hey, we found some more cryptocurrency accounts associated with this guy. And we want him to forfeit that shit too. Here they are. So it's, it's not like they stop at this point and they're like, hey, we got everything. They keep watching and somehow through some investigative process, they tied more accounts to him. So then they go to the court, they say, hey, we want all this stuff seized as well. Okay, so that's it. That's the end of the case. I know it was a lot, a lot more than I thought it was gonna be once I laid it out. So final thoughts on this case. First of all, I hope you notice on the thumbnail of this episode, there were a lot of pills that I put in there, right? And you were probably like, why did he not put the bar Xanax pills right in there? There's actually a reason. I try not to so hard not to infringe on anybody's anything. I try to give people credit when I use images and things like that. I didn't want to put the Xanax bar in there because I didn't want Pfizer to go, hey, use the Xanax bar in your thumbnail. You owe us something. I don't, I don't make money on this. I actually pay money to produce these podcasting. So I don't want to put something on there and then also owe Pfizer too. So what I did is I picked some random medicine. So if you were keen enough to notice that it was not 
Xanax bars and it was just random medicine on the thumbnail, thumbs up to you. All right. I really, I really struggled on that. I was like, somebody's going to notice this. Somebody's going to notice this. I just didn't want to use somebody's trademark or, or, or copyright. All right. So my biggest thing in this whole case, I kept going, why does he keep using the same account number? Why does he keep using the same account number? He did. But then he went to great lengths later on of setting up an LLC to buy a house and he used fake names and, you know, he went around to different mailboxes. I mean, he physically drove to different mailboxes to drop shit off. It's just like, <laughs> there was so much work, but then he goes back and uses the same single account and the investigators can, they just grab right onto that account number. And they watch anytime that account number is used and then they can pick up on any drug related shipment from there. And I think, I truly think that's what did him in. They didn't say it in the paperwork, but I, when I read it, that's what I think did him in, in the end was using that account number over and over and over. Now I, I'll say it again. I think Kamano was obviously bright. He had awesome potential and I think he still has awesome potential just because he made it into the Naval Academy, just making it, even if he wouldn't have said yes and gone there for a year, just making it was tough. And then he also make it into UC Berkeley, also tough, both prestigious schools. So he was obviously, he had great potential. So I hope he uses it. I hope he, he used it to great lengths in this case and made a lot of money on drugs, apparently. Millions of dollars on drugs. I hope when he gets out, he uses it for, for good too, right? I mean, imagine imagine what somebody can do if they just have a PhD in cybersecurity. I mean, I hear that's where it's at these days. It's a PhD in cybersecurity. So this guy's already got a PhD in something. So him jumping into cybersecurity, maybe that's the one profession he could actually do and maybe not be judged too hard for it. You know, uh, the other, most other places will probably see that Xanax conviction and not be super happy with it. I think, I think cybersecurity, uh, maybe there's a little bit of leniency where he could do like vulnerability research or something along those lines where somebody with a shady pass, it's fine. You know, you're not, touching PII, for instance, all you're doing is writing an exploit for a vulnerability, really hard, difficult work. I can't do it, but you don't, you can still be a convict and do it. That's what I'm saying. All right. So with that, please like subscribe, follow thumbs up. I really appreciate that so much. That's how these videos, they make it to other people is those likes and those subscriptions that boosted up the list. And then I, I actually see you know, a hundred more people will see this video when the likes go up on it. And I really appreciate it. That's the single thing you could do. If you want to say thank you for doing all the research and bringing it to you, that's the single most important thing you can do for me is just like, and subscribe. And the biggest thing is reshare. So if you know, I, I, I hate resharing things and putting it in front of people that might not like the, the material. But if you know that there's somebody that likes true crime podcast and you're like, Hey, check this out. I really appreciate it. That's the single biggest thing you can do for me. I really appreciate it. All right. So with that, what I want to do is preview next week. Now I know I screwed you over last week and I was like, Hey, we're going to talk about trick, but it's very technical. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's really in my um, topic area. Technically, you know, from an engineering standpoint, 
I'm going to tell you what I'm, we're going to do next week. I hope it stays true. I hope I don't go in there and open all the cases or open all the documents and have them be sealed on me. So that being said, if I can get to the court documentation next week, we're going to talk about the largest CIA data breach. Okay. And it's this individual. He was, um, he had a classified, uh, access to government secrets and through that was able to get his hands on a bunch of government secrets and that became a data breach that happened at the CIA. So I thought this was going to be a very interesting case with a different twist. You don't see a lot of these cases a lot of time. Um, so I want to hit them when they, when they come out because they're usually really big and a lot of people know about them. So what I like to do in these cases, when they're bigger cases like this, is I like to go straight to the court documentation and learn about all the things that that weren't reported in the news because you'll have, you know, NBC saying this and then CBS saying that. And those are things that you'll, they'll find in the court documentation. But a lot of times we'll pick through the court documentation. We'll find something that you know, a lot of other people don't report on. And that's, that's the fun thing here. So hope you come back next week and we will talk about the largest CIA data breach. Look forward to seeing you then. Thanks.